Last thing you want to do, especially in short-term rentals, is... Welcome to building wealth through real estate. If you invest or desire to invest in real estate, then this show is exactly what you need. And here's why. We all know that the number one thing that you should be doing as an investor is networking. Your network equals your net worth. But how can you use this to your advantage? Well, firstly, take notes. Listen to what the guests have to say. If you're a new investor, you can learn from the mistakes that they've made, the experiences that they've gone through, and learn how they think. If you're an experienced investor, you could see strategies that they may be implementing that you haven't thought of using yourself. Now, secondly, you may have questions. And if you do, great. Put them in the comment section down below and this way we can be sure to get those questions answered for you. And thirdly, there's a ton of information out there, but I found that most of it is relevant to the US and it's hard to try and take out and extract and see what's relevant to your area. So all of the guests that I'll be interviewing are Canadian investors. So if you invest in Canada, if you're interested in investing in Canada, then this show is exactly what you need. Joining us today is Mr. Carlos Yanalunas. AKA Carlos the Great. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Carlos, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got started in real estate and your journey to this point? So about me, I got started in real estate probably back in 2016 is when I bought my first house. Of course, I spent a couple of years learning before then. Um, from there, it was just me and my wife. We bought our first house. We did a house hack, which is where you move into the house, renovate it. Typically, you refinance it. And then you buy another house and you get an owner-occupied mortgage that way. So you can kind of go from house to house to house. We did that for a little while and that's how we kind of got started. Our first house was just a cute little 850 square foot bungalow here in Edmonton. Bungalow is a house where there's a, a ground floor and then a basement. And uh, it was awesome. We put a basement suite in and then we uh, a year later moved out. So it was a lot of fun. And then from there, we just grew our real estate portfolio little by little. Okay, so you actually started... Um started house hacking and then did you move to like just uh, rental properties like long-term rentals um, when did you switch over to predominantly short-term yeah so initially it was all long-term rentals we focused on uh, suited homes um, because you can get the people view them as up and down duplexes in some places some places they're called suites um, we focused on those for a long time uh, but in about 2017 my mom's condo was underwater. We had a rental market crash here and uh, she went from collecting 1800 bucks a month rent down to 1200. So then she was struggling. So uh, I, at that time, Airbnb was like just new, barely anyone knew about it. I said, hey, let's try this Airbnb thing. Worst case scenario, you're just as screwed as you were before. Best case scenario, it works. So that's what we did. We went and did that and we loved it. We just, it took off from there. Like the, uh, it, and uh, eventually the condo board shut us down. But by that time, we had already moved on and expanded to different uh, units. Okay. And then I take it you slowly started switching your existing properties to, um, to short-term rentals, essentially. Yeah, we switched everything over over time. We still have one long-term rental. At this point in time, I'm like, I think I'm just going to sell it just because it's, it's hard to have that in my business model because it's far away and stuff like that. So we're on the fence about that one, doing an agreement for sale, sell, sale on it or something like that. But outside of that, everything else is short-term. Okay. Yeah, you're you the, the short-term rental guy. Um, how do you recommend, <laughs> like given our current market, I know a lot of people are interested in uh, short-term rentals. How do you recommend people get started with short-term rentals? 
Uh, the thing that people need to realize is short-term rentals is very different than long-term rentals. It's a completely different uh, business model. Although you, both things have the same inventory, you're selling time. One of them is selling at retail, one of them is selling wholesale. So with short-term rentals, um, I always recommend to people to get started small. Start off with something little, like a basement suite or one house or something like that. See if you like it, and if you don't like it, stop. If you do like it, just dive in. That makes sense. That makes sense. Test the waters first. Yeah. Um, how, where, sorry, where are the most profitable uh, short-term rentals? Like how do you recommend investors narrow down their search criteria, um, looking to obtain, you know, more properties that uh, would be best for short-term rentals? So uh, the most profitable short-term rentals are islands in the Bahamas. <laughs> so, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So everything else from there is just downhill. So no, um, the uh, the thing with this is I, I I really when people come up and they ask me where the best place to buy is, it's you know I'm, you're asking me to to get, tell you market research to give you a crystal ball to point to you to where it goes. Like it's it's not the same as long term rentals. Long term rentals essentially it's it's always got three different classes. You got the ghetto, which cash flows like crazy, but your management is a pain. You got the the middle class areas, which are fantastic. There's less cash flow, but the people typically are better tenants. And then you got rich neighborhoods where oftentimes you're negatively cash flowing, uh, and the people though they they don't want anything really to do with you. So it's it's really difficult for me to say with short-term rentals because it's a supply and demand economy. So um, it's a little more complicated than that as well. It's also on a bell curve. But downtowns of cities, typically there's always demand that's greater than supply. So that'd be my first recommendation is to look downtowns. The next recommendation is to look for cultural areas. The third recommendation is to look for event venues. So look for those areas when you're picking your Airbnbs. But example here in Edmonton, Edmonton downtown still needs more people or more Airbnbs. White Ave, which is our, our big cultural area, is completely saturated bloodbath. So if you are not at the top of the, the market in terms of how your suite looks and how good you're at managing and how good you're marketing, you're, you're losing money because it's, there's a lot of competition there. So the best thing that I recommend to everyone is to go online. There's a guy named Sean Rakujik. He's got a free market analysis course on youtube it's just a playlist on youtube go watch that and then do your own market research because what i tell you might not be the same as it is in six months yes yes absolutely there's uh there's no right answer for that and it will differ from from each individual's marketplace to marketplace um but i love that answer you broke it down and you differentiated it very nicely between long-term and um short-term rentals because the scope and the criteria is like completely different I know you've also uh, mentioned many times before that um, differentiating your properties is a big factor in getting people to choose your property over the competition. I know you're super hands-on and creative. I mean, hence, look at that table in front there. Um, but what advice do you have for uh, us mere mortals who can't build our own furniture? How can we sort of separate ourselves from the competition? <laughs> <laughs> so there's tons of ways to separate yourself from the competition. The first thing you got to do is you got to go look what's everyone else doing. If everyone else in your, in your market is doing uh, a modern um, luxury guest or penthouse suite, then there's no point in you trying to compete in that suite. 
At the same time, though, if you go look at the market and there's nobody doing rustic, then go do rustic. There's tons of ways to stand out, and it doesn't have to be complicated. The first thing I would recommend is to pick a decor style. There's 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 tons of different decor styles, but at the end of the day, there's I, I believe it's like a handful of like choices. You got either rustic or modern. So rustic is wood and iron. Modern is stone and, and chrome. Um, then you have timeline decor styles. Mid-century modern, 70s are ones that people can think of. On the far end, you got traditional, which is like Victorian era. And then you got uh, contemporary, which is what's popular right now. So that's that kind of scale. And then the last one you have is is kind of like how busy the place is with color and stuff like that. So on the far side, you got minimalism, which is on its way out. And then on the opposite side, you technically have maximalism, which was only popular for like six months. <laughs> but you have things like, yeah, you got things like uh, bohemian, like true boho, which is just an organized mess. So, and that's full of vibrance and colors and, and everything, whereas minimalism is very much no colors. So kind of those are the three scales I tell people to, to learn about a little bit. There's tons of videos on YouTube. Once you get the basics down of picking of the different decor styles, like it'll take you like half an hour, 20 minutes to learn it all. Um, you'll be able to go in and look and say, oh, I see that. That place is like distressed wood and black iron. That's a rustic house. Oh, I see that place. It's all geometric shapes and um, lots of marble. That's modern. And so you can then go and say, hey, what can I do to stand out in the competition? What kind of decor style is missing that I think would pop compared to the competition? And then the next thing I would recommend is if once you've decided you like Airbnbs, is to pick unique themes. So my most popular one right now is our crystal and crystal. gemstone themed Airbnb. I love that one. Yeah, I know. I, it's amazing. Um, the challenge with the, the crystal is that it was very much a lot of things I made by hand myself. I made tables that no one else in the world has ever made before. I did a whole bunch of stuff to make myself stand out that way. So that's not for everybody. However, another one I'm doing is um, a boho themed one that's really emphasis on plants. So I'm calling it the Bohemian Garden. Um, that one, all it is is just getting a ton of fake plants and making it look nice. So that's something that anybody could do. Yeah. So you're not going to be able to do it better than me. But no. <laughs> um, there was a guy I know who did a unicorn-themed Airbnb. All the blankets had unicorns on them. All the things, like they were unicorn bathrobes, unicorn everything. And it was super popular. Unfortunately, it got too popular, which is sometimes a problem when it starts taking off your neighbors. But it was super-duper popular, and it exploded. So you don't have to go crazy. There's one that I think is absolutely crazy is um, a mirror-themed Airbnb. This person had an obsession with mirrors and he put mirrors on every surface like his outside of his house is covered in mirrors <laughs> wow so yeah that's a great answer yeah i love i love that uh your the crystal one the, the crystal and uh gem one that's i saw the walkthrough on that it's 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 stunning um that that's a great tip. And tell me, um, when people go ahead and choose a theme, should they be worried that they sort of going to isolate a small portion of the market share? Or is it still more advantageous to just pick a specific theme and, 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 and run with that? You are limited by your market. So, for example, if you're in Los Angeles, you can go as crazy as you want because at the end of the day, things in L.A., the more, there's always a more market for the weird stuff. There's more market for crazy stuff. And there's enough population to be able to keep things going. For example, in Tokyo, there was a Mario-themed Airbnb. Like, they had little, like, 
Yoshi holding the toilet paper roll. The Ottomans were those like uh, mystery blocks that you punch to get your power-ups. Um, that works in Tokyo. That wouldn't probably work in um, someplace like like in the middle of nowhere, like Fort McMurray, Alberta. Because there's not enough people who are going to find that cool and exciting to be able to keep you fully booked. So if you're in a big city, you have a lot more room to be creative. If you're in a small city, not as much. you got to appeal to a broader spectrum. So, for example, here in Edmonton, I did a steampunk theme, and that one failed. There was a couple of reasons behind it. One, number one, being steampunk is naturally a very gloomy, darker kind of theme. So it wasn't able to get the, the amazingness that I was hoping for in the photos. It, they sucked. So that, of course, turned people down. So I had a lot of people coming because they were excited about steampunk, but at the end of the day, it didn't end up uh, panning out long term. So we ended up shutting it down, and it just didn't do well. That makes sense. That makes sense. So firstly, understanding your, your, your market. And then, of course, not everything is going to be a win. But yeah, you're absolutely right. If you're in a smaller uh, marketplace, there's, there should be less competition. But then maybe you don't want to narrow down too much on on the theme itself, or at least know the target audience. Um, now, should investors, speaking of photography, should investors outsource the photography and the copywriting for the listing? Or can they do that themselves? If, if they're good at photos, like if they're handy with photos, um, especially with the tech you have in smart homes or smartphones nowadays, you can be able to do it if you can take your photos and edit them yourself. That's totally doable. At the same time, though, it costs like 150 bucks, 250 bucks for a really good professionally done photo job. So I would recommend doing that personally to anyone starting out. The photos at the end of the day, uh, they're going to be yours forever. Uh, you'll be able to use them to sell the house eventually, you know, examples of how the place looked and stuff like that. So I would definitely recommend spending the money on a professional photographer when you're starting out. But if you're good at photography or you're an amateur photographer, you'll probably be able to do it yourself. Yeah, that's a great point there because that's sort of the first thing that people see um, when deciding if they're even going to like, I mean, the, the first photo, when deciding if they're going to click onto the listing and when they're deciding if they're going to book it. So um, it's definitely, I would probably assume a very important aspect uh, it's like 95 percent of your marketing is your photos like people who take crappy you can tell they took it with an iphone they did it in um portrait mode instead of landscape mode but it just looks horrible it's grainy it's blotchy if if you think that that's going to pass nowadays this isn't 2016 anymore you're going to get nothing you might have the best suite in the world but if your photos suck you're getting nothing exactly Exactly. Tell me, um, what, what are some key mistakes that um, you see people make when it comes to short-term rentals? Uh, photos. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> photos are the biggest one. Um, another one is an IKEA-themed Airbnb. So IKEA has some wonderful pieces. Like They have a coffee table that I absolutely love. It's got little wheels on it. I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. It costs 150 bucks or something like that. Ikea also has a $25 lac table, which is just black, and it literally is, it's, it's Ikea themed, is the best way to put it. So you can't get away with an Ikea themed Airbnb nowadays, it's not like 2016. But um, at the same time, you can overspend. If I spend $20,000 on a couch, and then my first guest wrecks it, that money's gone. And not only that, I'm never going to make the money back on that kind of investment. So you kind of got to find that balance between what you're paying for stuff and also having stuff that lasts a long time. 
So, you know, I, I like to shop at a local store here. Um, it's a wholesaler at Goli Furniture. The stuff there looks great. It's pretty good quality. It's not amazing quality, but it's, it's like you, you can project that its lifespan will be three to five years. So that's more than enough time for me to recruit my cost. And in the event that it gets wrecked, I'm not heartbroken having to replace it. Exactly. Because the, the couches are like, a, they're like 500 to $1,000 each. Okay. Okay. And obviously I'm sure they less common than the Ikea furniture that you've seen a lot of places too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for people worried about short-term rentals being risky? You know, how to protect themselves and does scaling increase their risk of getting wiped out? Should something crazy happen, you know, like another lockdown where people can't leave their houses? Um, so within the Airbnb community, there's really like, there's three different kind of like subgroups. There's people who do what's called co-hosting, which is Airbnb property management. Essentially, there's no risk to you. You're, you're just managing for the person. You're not putting up your own money in. Um, it's a great way to, when you're starting out, to be able to get people's Airbnbs that aren't yours um, without having to put capital down. The next one is when people own their own homes. And typically that would have the least amount of risk. Because in the event that everything just falls apart, you can switch to long-term rentals. Um, and you also have the most control of the property. Uh, it is the most cash intensive. You can buy the least number of units. And then there's um, something called um, arbitrage, which is where you go and lease a unit and then you put it on Airbnb. That's the riskiest because you're releasing these units, you're keeping a commitment. And in the event that the market goes soft, you're going to be stuck with these units and you still have to make your rent checks. And those rent checks aren't be going back to you in the form of mortgage buy down and stuff like that. So that would be the riskiest. Those were the people who were wiped out when COVID hit. There's huge companies that do this, like Saunders, the biggest one. We had thousand, like I think 10,000 or might have been 2,000 uh, units in the United States. 2,000. So they were making, um, they were majorly impacted by it, but they survived because of some other things that they did. Um, but companies like Stay Alfred, Lyric, I think Zeus, they got wiped out. They went bankrupt overnight. So rental arbitrage allows you to expand really quickly, but it also has the highest risk. So, and then as well, I tell people like never buy a property that it's only thing you'll make work, make it work is having as a short-term rental. Cause you never know what's going to happen in the market. You might turn out that you hate Airbnbs. You might, the, the city might shut you down. Your condo board will probably shut you down. I hate condos so much. <laughs> um, you, you don't want it so that way Airbnb is your only plan. You want to be able to fall back on long-term renting to be able to afford it. So there's obviously there's exceptions. Like if you're in Florida or the mountains of Colorado, you're in a tourist market. That's something that's expected. That's something you can rely on. Banks will finance you on that. But if you're in the Red Deer, Alberta, or Brandon, Manitoba, you want to make sure you have a backup plan. Yes, yes. I know I've heard you say that before and uh I was actually I was I was waiting for that to come and exactly um if if you if you have the if it can work for long-term rental and short-term rental then I mean, it's just as risky as investing in in rental property, really, right? If you have the option to just switch it back anyway. So, um, I now I I sort of know the answer to this question, but I looked into like the top most asked questions on short term rentals just to see like what people are really interested in learning. And one of them is: is short term rental uh, income is it passive? What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> Uh, so 
I hate to break everyone's heart. There's no <laughs> such thing as passive income. Nothing anywhere is passive. Yeah. Even even stock dividends are not passive. We'll just watch the market fall down and you'll realize how not passive they are as your stress goes smooth. Um short-term rentals are a very different kind of uh game. So if with short-term rentals, you need to be constantly having customer service, responding to your guests, making the bookings, telling them how to check in and stuff like that. You need to have people coming, you yourself or somebody you hire, cleaning the place behind your guests, making sure everything's good, maintenance still needs to be done. All these things need to be coordinated. And for example, in the summertime, you'll have like a five-hour window to have all your cleaning and repairs done. It's not at all passive. But the difference between short-term and long-term rentals is short-term rentals is easily um, scalable in terms of getting people, hiring people to do stuff. So with long-term rentals, there's the rule of 80, which means you typically need 80 doors to be able to afford an in-house property manager, an in-house maintenance person, and have enough work for them to work full-time. Um, most people in long-term rentals can manage, self-manage 10 to 20 doors. So there's this big gap between 20 to 80 where people find themselves stuck. They either get to like 35 and they're overwhelmed and they can't do anything and they can't really afford as much because they, they can't afford a property manager or they're doing the mad scramble to get there as fast as, to 80 as fast as possible. So those are the kind of like the two people that you see uh, in long-term rentals. In short-term rentals, as soon as I have three to five units, I can afford a housekeeper, which is like the biggest labor thing. An in-house housekeeper that I pay by the hour, and it's way cheaper than hiring somebody out. Um, the next thing that happens is once I hit 10 doors, I can afford, I can typically afford an in-house uh, manager to be able to take care of all the properties and stuff like that. So that's way smaller of a, a level to be, with because you have higher cash flow to be able to afford these things than if you're just uh, doing long-term rentals. So in a way, it's it's quicker to be able for me to exit myself out of the business, um, but also it's way more work to do up front. Yes, yes. And I've also heard you say that short-term rentals is the hospitality business. It's It's not the same like long-term rentals. So... Um, I think if people can understand that going in, they'll just uh, better better prepare themselves for it. But I, I think that's a common thing is people are looking for, where's that passive income? You know? <laughs> where's that money when I sleep? Yeah. <laughs> well, most people aren't sleeping when they have passive income. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me, what, what sort of software um, are you using to run your, your short-term rental business? None. None? Really? Honestly, like when it comes to market research, I mean, everyone talks about air DNA and I don't have any real problems with them, but they're not my first choice. Wheelhouse would be my first choice. I don't even use them. Um, in terms of price automation software, I just do everything myself. It's easy for me to go and check my competition and figure out the prices. Um, for people who don't have any time, wheelhouse is probably great. Um, so that, those are the two big things. And when it comes to, I guess I do have one software that I use, and that's to automate the changes in my locks. So I use what's called Z-Wave locks. So Z-Wave is a protocol for smart homes. So I have a little hub, and it connects to Airbnb, and it just takes the last four digits of the phone number and then programs in that as their code when they check in and then deletes it when they check out. That's about it. That's so. that's super handy. But I, I like that, though, because... Um people would often think that, hey, I need to have all this great, awesome software to make things work. But 
you're crushing it and uh, no software needed. So it's good to know. Yeah. It's good to know. Um, what should investors stock in their short-term rentals? What sort of things are you stocking up on? Um, well, there's the basics. Obviously, you need to supply linens and towels and toilet paper and paper towel. Um, when, things that I like to stock that are more like to help the people have a greater experience is I like to put a Brita water like jug filter in the fridge, a water, a water pitcher. So uh, that's one thing I like to do. People like filtered water. Whenever you leave a city, the next person's tap water tastes gross. <laughs> that's just the way it is for travelers. And that's something that people don't think about. Salt and pepper, um, oil, a little bit of cooking oil and stuff like that. Those are probably the things I would recommend people doing. Another thing as well is in your coffee station, because you need to have a coffee station. If you don't have one, you're an idiot. Um, I don't drink coffee. I think coffee is terrible. I worked at Tim Hortons as my first job when I was 14, and that killed any desire for coffee in my life. Um, most people have coffee, but then they don't have decaf, and they don't have tea. 20 to 40% of your guests, depending on where they come from, will actually drink decaf or tea. So I would recommend having those things there. Obviously, whitener, salt, or sugar. No, salt. Don't put salt in your coffee. Sugar <laughs> and uh, sweetener are also great to have as well. Um, personally, I do not use Keurigs. Keurigs are very expensive. The machines break and they're impossible to clean. So um, I just use drip coffee makers. And I always, always have on the side the little French press for people who bring their own beans and stuff. Great advice there. Um, especially the... The, the the water filter i i don't think a lot of people think of that though and and you're absolutely right as soon as you go to another place the the tap water just tastes horrible um that's a great tip um i know the mentality on vacancy is a little different with regards to short-term rentals um you know keeping it fully occupied and charging less may not be the most efficient way to sort of maximize your net income i mean as you can have higher turnover that's just eating away into your profits how should people analyze and sort of adjust their list price and the minimum number of days um, that they'll rent their properties out for? So there's a big struggle a lot of people have. The typical first-time Airbnb will say, I want to make $5,000 a month, and then they'll take 5000 divided by 30 and stuff as their nightly rate. And typically, they'll, busy season, they'll get booked because their rates are cheap. In slow season, they will just have the weekends booked and then the midweek is empty. At the end of the day, your inventory is time. You need to sell this time or you lose it and you don't make as much money. So people, I have units where I'm willing to crash the price down to $30 a night. Now, most people think that's crazy, but I know what's called my variable expenses. So variable expenses are additional expenses that you incur as a result of hosting somebody. So this will be your cleaning fee, the cost it takes you to get your linens washed, maintenance, Typically, like you can expect a certain de degradation of everything as things are used, um, additional heating and electricity costs. Those are your variable expenses. So, in the case of one of my basement suites, my variable expenses are literally uh, $47 per check in, check out. So, that means if I do $48 for a booking, I now have $1 to hammer down my fixed expenses, which means my profit increases by $1. So if I, for example, have, you know, uh, my weekends are all booked, my midweeks are not getting booked, and I literally put it like $5 above my um, uh, variable expense rate, $5 times 
five days times four weeks, that's $100. That's $100 extra cash flow in your pocket in one month. And that's a really easy thing to do. But most people are saying, well, you know, like, I don't want to go too low. I don't want to be too cheap. And at the other day, I'm like, no, you want to be booked. If that time is not going to sell for more than $40, then you want to make sure that you get that time at the highest rate you can each night. So there's other strategies as well. Some people like to have a higher and higher rates, but then they have deeper discounts the longer you book. So then they reduce their expense, their variable expenses, because more days are having per cleaning, essentially. And then they get a longer term booking at a little bit of a lower rate, but they get more occupancy. So there's a ton of different ways to strategize to do it. But at the end of the day, you want every day to be booked. You want to have someone every single day. Otherwise, that inventory is gone. You cannot charge for it again. Absolutely. I love that advice, though. I, I like that with, um, you know, knowing your variable costs, because anything above that, you're making a profit. And that way you could sort of know your range that works for you. So you can, you know, have the property fold and you know, you know what your cutoff is, where it's like, it doesn't make sense having people in here because it's not covering the cost. Um, yeah, I love that advice. People could sort of find find the right the right price that works for them given the competition and given their specific their specific costs. Um, now, I think having having the right systems in place to suit your current position is a key factor in sort of maximizing your profits and time. Um, that being said, when and how, and I know you've touched on this, when and how um, should people like adjust their systems as they scale up? So you said having three units, you can sort of start to um, hire sort of in-house cleaners and, and that sort of thing. How, how have you sort of, adjusted and as you've adjusted your systems as you've scaled scaled up your properties because if i'm not mistaken i think you have about a dozen properties now yeah okay. um the way it works for us is we have two cleaning teams because also our business model is shifting we're going towards bigger houses just because we happen to accidentally get into that market um so i have a cleaning team which is for my small properties and a cleaning team which is for my big properties so they with a big property you know i had to adjust a big property it takes eight man hours to clean, but I only have like a five hour window. So I have to have multiple cleaners who essentially work one or two days a week, as opposed to my small properties, which is like an hour cleaning multiple times a week. So it's it's a little bit of a different thing. And you, you have to kind of like figure out. I, I had a really good discussion with a guy who is really good at automation. He finds one job that he can outsource and he finds somebody to do it and it can be as simple as somebody handling leads somebody handling a bunch of different things whatever job is taking up a chunk of big chunk of your time you need to find some way to either automate that or to outsource it and thankfully with things like short-term rentals it's super easy to automate everything um but uh i think the biggest challenge at the end of the day will be for me is like finding some way to automate expansion I can't do that yet. And that's what takes up the most of my time. What other advice do you have for investors to ensure that they give them that best chance of succeeding now uh, when it comes to, uh, with regards to short-term rentals? Now, I know you've probably, you've probably touched on all of this. I feel like the advice that you've given to this point um, is probably good enough. But is there anything that you want to add? I mean, you know, find a theme, uh, differentiate yourself, have good photos for your listing. Um Make sure the property can work as a long-term and short-term. So if you need to fall back onto long-term rental, you can. Um, is there anything else that you want to add in there that, that could sort of just help increase the odds? Uh, 
Honestly, I if once you know you like to do Airbnbs, I suggest ramping up to five units. Okay. Because at the end of the day, then you can have your own house cleaners. Uh, cleaning is your biggest variable expense. Um, if you're uh, there's kind of like three phases. When you first start out, you're doing it yourself, so your cleaning fee is essentially just put in your pocket. Then when you're like small, you end up having to outsource the cleaning. And for example, in this market here, I you would pay anywhere from forty-five to ninety dollars to clean a one-bedroom here. So then eventually, when you hire your own house cleaners, then your cleaning expenses drop. Now I pay anywhere from twenty-five to fifty dollars to clean. So essentially, cuts in half. So that'd be the first thing is like if you're gonna go scale up, then scale up. Go to five at least. Go to six, seven at least. So that way you can have enough thing that you can take away housekeeping from your plate. Um, when it comes to Airbnbs, like I said, it's on a bell curve. So for those of you who don't know what a bell curve is, it's uh, the majority of things fit in the 50th percentile. Then there's the like the bottom 10% and then the top 10%. So the top 10% of Airbnbs, they'll always be booked, essentially. They'll always have the most bookings. People will book them first. Then when that one's booked, you go down the percentiles eventually until you get to the average and then eventually to the crappy. So when it comes to picking a property to do for short-term rentals, you need to have, be, well, have one of the... When it comes to picking properties for short-term rentals, you need to have four things in mind. You're going to be judged based on what your property's location is. There's not much you can do to change that, so when you buy that property, make sure it's in the location that does well. Like I said, downtown Edmonton, tons of bookings. West Edmonton Mall, you're competing with hotels. You're competing with the Fantasyland Hotel, which has decor-themed rooms and stuff like that. It's a tough competition. you got to decide if that's a market you want to get into. On the flip side, when I opened up a big house in Shore Park, at the time, I was the only person there. There was like one other booking for a basement suite. So I was in a really great position to be a big fish in a small pond. So, and to this day, that property is still one of the best performers in all of Edmonton. So you pick, pick your location wisely. So and downtown isn't the only gem. There's always other gems. There's other places. Essentially, wherever you see hotels setting up, that's a gem location. So you got to find those gem locations where hotels can't set up. Um, the next one would be um, your amenities. So... Those are typically things that are a little bit more fixed or are a little bit more expensive to put in. So for example, the, how many bedrooms you have is an amenity. If you're an eight bedroom house, you're gonna be able to charge different rates than if you're a studio apartment. If you um, have a hot tub, you're gonna get all the bookings, but you gotta decide if you wanna deal with the people who book for hot tubs. Um, if you have a fireplace, that's gonna attract people. So if your place has a fireplace built into it, that's going to get a different group of people. If you have granite countertops, that's going to attract different people than if you have cheapo laminate countertops. So you, these kind of factors are things you got to figure out for your amenities um, and what's going to be the best thing. Like I said, a hot tub will get you 99% occupancy overnight. Um, having a fireplace might increase your occupancy by 5%. Or if everybody has, for example, if you're in Florida and you're the only person who doesn't have a pool, you're going to have a major drop in your occupancy because Florida, all houses have pools there because it's, you know, a burning, hot, scorching, humid jungle, essentially. Yeah. So, so that's, so those are factors you got to think of when it comes to amenities. What do you have that can make you stand out and what do you need to have? Otherwise you're going to be pushed out. Um, the next one would be your marketing and that's going to be your decor theme. 
So with that, it's not so much about picking your, um, because at the end of the day, when you invest into the furniture for an Airbnb, you're going to be putting out anywhere from like $5,000 to $30,000, depending on how big your house is. That's still an investment that you need to get back. So you need to be very picky about what decor theme you're going, what things you're going to do to stand out, and you know, make sure you get really good photos of those decor pieces. The last thing you want to do is spend thirty thousand dollars on furniture, and then <laughs> cheap out on your pictures that you on the place, and then you never get your money back. So that's uh, that would be the next thing I would recommend to investors when they're considering it. And then also make sure you're going to be a good host. It is hospitality. It is a customer service driven business. Your customer needs to feel like you care about them. And if you're a person who's a my way or the highway, I don't want to hear your complaining. I don't want to hear your belly aching. I can't be political in how I talk to you. Then probably you shouldn't be the person messaging on Airbnb. Yeah, probably not. And and while you're saying this, I'm actually thinking, um, do people stand a chance being a new selling um, coming into the Airbnb space with zero reviews, but having a good listing, having a good theme? Is there still a chance for that competing with other people who have um, a lot of reviews? Is that a, a huge factor? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Okay. So Airbnb is really good towards new hosts. When you first set up your Airbnb, you have about a three-month period where you're getting an SEO or search engine optimization boost in the algorithm. So for the three months, Airbnb promotes you. So at that point in time, you're either going to sink or swim. So if you're a crappy kind of place that nobody likes and your reviews are all bad, you're going to get downranked really hard. Yeah. And eventually, you know, you'll, Airbnb will kind of figure out where to put you in the recommendations. So it's really easy for new hosts to get in. Superhost is decided quarterly, so it takes it doesn't take very long for you to get the superhost status. Um, that's a big thing that people, some people, that, it's a big thing that some people care about, some people don't, some people think it's worth a lot. Other people think it doesn't matter anymore. Either way, it's, if you're if you're not being a super host, you're probably making some mistakes. Good to know. Good to know. Now, I I know um, one of the things you said was that people should try and uh, scale up as fast as they can to that specific point so that they can, you know, outsource and, um, you know, perhaps decrease some of their costs. Um, one thought just popped in my mind for, for this, you know, there's a specific group or genre of people that like dabbling in a lot of things um you know let's do some short term let's do some long term let's do you know a whole bunch of these different strategies what's your thoughts on that do you think that if people want to pursue short-term rentals that they should try and um pursue that strategy exclusively and and get good at that and and scale out that way or do you think it's better for people to do a few short terms do some long terms um you know perhaps do some some lease options, whatever, just a whole mixed bag of strategies. What's your take on that? Yeah, no, I definitely think that people should, um, at the end of the day, real estate is such a big field. You got everything from land development, flipping, burrs, um, just straight up buy and hold, options to purchase, even just raw land being. So real estate is a huge world, and at the end of the day, people either need to find what they love and they stick to it or they try a bunch of different things because they like to try different things i met a guy who literally he does what's um he's really big into gentrification so what he'll do is he'll buy a property where there's a big land plot and he'll tear the house down that's on it subdivide it build two skinny houses and then sell them off and go that's his whole business model and he actually stopped doing it he was making literally i think it was like two hundred thousand dollars a a development and he said it was just too boring. He couldn't fathom going and doing it again. He was bored. 
So, uh, and of course, you know, being bored and having two hundred thousand dollars in jail, I can't even fathom that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it blows my mind when he says that. But at the same time, you know, then he went and just tried something else, tried something different. So, with people trying a bunch of different things, try it. You might like short-term rentals, you might not. You might just want to do a little bit here, just dabble it, just to be able to brag about it, and that's totally cool. There's no reason why you can't do that. Uh, when I talk to people about scaling, I say, yeah, scale to three to five if you want to be serious about it. At the same time, if you're okay with cleaning three units or your, your profit margin is big enough that you can afford um, contractor rates, then go for it. But at the end of the day, my recommendations are just what I would do and what I suggest to other people. At the same time, you're free to go and make your Airbnb business as small or as big as possible. That makes you happy. Because if you're miserable, like last thing you want to do, especially in short-term rentals, is do it because you just want the money. Because yeah. you're going to be burnt out and miserable so fast. Long-term rental landlords, you know, you get a bad tenant. Eventually, you, you, you deal with whining for a year. You get them out, and then you get a good tenant, and life is good again. Short-term rentals, it's going to be there. You're going to be doing stuff every single week for years. So if you hate it, then just get out. If you love it, then stay in. And the nice thing about short-term rentals is, like, you can just shut down your unit if you want. Um, if you shut it down and you have bookings and you burn your bridge with Airbnb, that's that's one thing. Um, but if you, you know, say, you know, I'm not taking any more bookings after, um, like for example, for us, September 31st, we shut down three units downtown Edmonton because it's going into slow season. They were underperformers. We weren't going to keep them through slow season because they become a pain to manage. So we just didn't have any bookings after September 31st. We wrapped up that lease agreement, uh, gave it back to the building, and then we uh, took the furniture out, and that was it. We shut those down. So that's something you can do with short-term rentals is it's really easy to wrap it up. You don't have to wait for your tenants to leave. At the end of the day, you can shut it down instantly if you want. And if you have to do that many cancellations, Airbnb will not love you anymore. So then you have options. Speaking of which, that, that there was um, rental arbitrage, right? Um, yeah, those units were arbitrage. Okay, so how 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 uh, how do you go about sort of balancing your portfolio? Because like you touched on um, early on in the episode, arbitrage is a quick way to scale. It's the riskiest way, of course. Um, what's your specific take on finding that balance between the units you own and then your arbitrage your arbitrage units and um, using that to scale, but but trying to stay. Um, in a position that you sort of okay with that level of risk, how should people evaluate that for their own personal standards? Um, there's also ways that arbitrage is less risky because essentially you only have to survive one year and then you can get out of that kind of thing. Um, with arbitrage, so with our, if I could, I wouldn't have any more arbitrage units because the time that we got them back in 2020, Things went really, really good for a little bit. Then they went bad. Then they went good with all the lockdowns and stuff like that. We um, we got it, and for a while, their arbitrage was, or sorry, like studio apartments, one bedroom, two bedroom apartments, were doing better than big units were for an ROI. And so it worked for a while. Now the market got saturated. So now their revenues down. Now they're not performing as well. So we keep them though because we need to have like constant work for our cleaners. That's one of the things as well is once you scale up to a certain point, you, you have people you need to take care of. And it's both a really awesome thing as a entrepreneur, as a business owner, to have these people that you are happy that you're providing them a stable income. You're happy because you're being able to feed their family. But at the same time, you also have a responsibility to make sure you don't drop the ball on them. 
So we have arbitrage units we don't really want because we want to have our cleaners having stable income. So then come April though, we're going to scale up, pick up six more units, and now we're using them to test out different decor styles. So I, the steampunk one I did, I tested out in an apartment. So that way I could see, hey, if it doesn't work as a studio apartment, it probably won't work as a six bedroom house. So we did that. We, uh, we tested a, a really dark color, like kind of like an elegant decor theme with a lot of black marble kind of looking stuff. You know, our bed linens were black with white, really bright white pillows. It was really, it was a beautiful theme. It was awesome. We made it into uh, the ultimate work from home suite. At the end of the day though, once COVID ended, it just it lost its appeal. It, it was hard to clean. We ended up shutting that one down. It was an underperformer. So we got rid of the underperformers and then we kept the performers. Rustic still performs. We have a blue and gold themed one that was the precursor for the crystal one that performed really well. Um, the boho one that we tried out, it performs still really well. So we keep our we keep set the performers because there's no reason to get rid of a performing asset as well. So that's a little bit how our strategy is currently working with um, arbitrage. So come this spring, we're probably going to pick up six units there, try six different decor styles. And come September, we'll ditch the ones that don't do well. I love that. That's so strategic, though. You know, um, there's so much. There, you, you listed like a whole bunch of advantages and, and, and aspects that you take into consideration when using arbitrage that I think people can take from is, um, firstly, just helping you scale up to a specific number that can allow you to take on um take on help so if you can't get to that three to five you could sort of um if you have some cash reserves that you know worst case scenario you could cover for the next few months you could cover um any short shortfall there you could take on some arbitrage units to help sustain um that lack that you have until you're able to acquire more properties and then also i like the fact that you you test on a smaller scale so you could test on like a one bedroom, see if it works before actually testing on a bigger scale. So, so um, your risk is a lot less. Your 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 upfront capital expenditures are a lot less. And if it doesn't work, okay, move on to the next one. And if it does, let's scale that out. I love that. I, I love that. And then you're able to shut it down in the slow season, so you don't have to worry about it. It's not something that you own. So um, you could keep all the performing ones, shut down the ones that don't perform, and retest again the next year. Like. I think that is gold. That in itself is is really gold. It's it's super super smart and efficient. I love that. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest problems that new investors faced is analyzing deals and just understanding how an investor thinks. Now you literally just touched on this, which like this just this last few minutes, I feel like you you threw a whole bunch of gold there. Um, would you mind if we run through, um, if we run through one of your one of your deals? Sure. Okay. Do you have any particular one in mind? And mm. and more so, more so because I know you said you you make sure it works for a uh, long term rental when crunching the numbers, as well as uh, taking short term rental, um, um, taking short term rental into consideration. Um, yeah, if you could run through any one of those deals, just showing us sort of the process that that you ran through now you sort of you've, you've touched on this like in general like the criteria for short term what you need to be looking for and then making sure that it works for long term but um i do know that you had a particular afs deal i'm not sure if that one worked out but any deal you want to go through so i have one it's an afs deal it's over in uh bonnie Deer there um essentially what it is is a, a person bought two houses um, they can't afford to have two houses and they don't really want to be landlords. 
So I came to them, I said, I'll purchase your house via what's called an agreement for sale, which is pretty much, it's like seller financing essentially, but you're arbitraging with the bank. Um, so we're buying that house and it's a hundred percent agreement for sale. I'm not putting any money down except for closing costs. So I'm getting this house. The mortgage on it is like 250 and it's got a, I think a 2.7% interest rate. So it's still really good. Another four years on the interest rate. So right now when we're recording this, interest rates are like 6% or some weird crap for the prime rate. So it's like 9% for anyone getting a locked in rate. So it's really expensive. And then we're um, getting their, uh, the remainder, the other $200,000 of equity, seller financed at um, 5%. So at the end of the day, our costs for that we're paying to him is going to work out to like 2100 bucks a month. And then all the other expenses, such as insurance and taxes, come out to about 25 In that area, houses of comparable ones also rent for about 2500 bucks, 25 to 27 right now. So it's in a primo area, the school right behind it. It's it's one of the more desirable schools. It's also connected nearby to one of the private schools in Edmonton. It's a fantastic area. The rent, long-term rent, rents the families. It's a five-bedroom house. It's fantastic and awesome. And it would be able to work as a long-term rental, um, which I'm getting for essentially 0% down. And what, what's then, your term on this uh, one? Sorry, if you don't mind me asking. 13 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, so although it's probably going to get knocked down to eight because his lawyer said, "Hey, why are you doing thirteen years? You should do eight years with an option for thirteen, for another five. I mean, so um, he called me up and I was just honest with him. I'm like, "Yeah, the only reason I asked for thirteen years is because it's better for me. Eight years would be better for you. So it's up to you what you want to do." And that's part of negotiating. This guy's also a member of one of my local communities, so I can't really grind him too hard. He's a great guy. I appreciate his family. Um, so that way it works out as a long-term rent or so as a long-term rental, I can fall back, I'll break even and I'm getting the property for almost 0% down. So my ROI is still crazy. Um, as a short-term rental though, given the area that it's in and the niche of the market, when I analyzed it, I figured on average, my income coming to that property will be anywhere from 3,500 to $12,000 a month. So obviously in the summertime, I'll probably pull closer to 12,000. In off-season, slow season, I'll probably pull in closer to 3500 Those days, I'll probably just get weekend bookings. And assuming that I get like just under $1,000 a booking, $700 to $1,000 a booking, $3,500 to $4,000 a month, essentially. So taking away my fixed expenses, which is like 2700 essentially, uh, I'm left with another like 800 And then if I'm doing uh, cleaning once a week, because it's only the weekends booking, that's uh, about $200 for cleaning that place, $250. So I would essentially be getting break even on the slow season. On busy season, however, my my cleaning expenses will probably jump to like $1,500. So all in all, my expenses would probably be close to $4,000 or $5,000 a month. But I'm pulling in $12,000, so you can see my spread is huge. So... That's, of course, a big house. Big houses are very volatile in terms of how much you pull in seasonally and stuff like that. Yes. So that's that's one of the deals I have going on right now. So it's it's working out really good for us. It's a beautiful home. It's a home that actually my wife is and I are arguing about whether or not we should move into it ourselves. <laughs> so there's there's a few factors and things like that. But overall, it's it's a fantastic deal for zero percent down, especially. Um, 
on the flip side though i also have a um and like that that's uh let me just think for a sec another deal i can give you i'll give you a hypothetical deal this isn't what i'm doing but because i know people want to know about arbitrage i'll give this example I can go rent studio apartments downtown at a certain building where I have a great relationship with the property management company for about thousand uh, dollars a month. The interest or electricity is the only additional expense, so that brings it up to eleven hundred. Parking is another hundred and fifty, so be about thirteen fifty. Insurance will be probably another forty bucks, so fourteen hundred. Let's round it up to fifteen hundred bucks. So fifteen hundred bucks a month is my fixed expenses on the place. On average, um, and this is I just know from historical, I pull in anywhere from $2,100 to $4,000 a month on this studio, depending on the season. So at the end of the day, my variable expenses, if I'm just doing four bookings a month, um, let's say that uh, for that one, it's going to cost me about 40 bucks to clean, so that's an extra 160 bucks. I'm cash flowing about 250 during slow season. Busy season, my, my expenses come up to about 2100 so I'm cash flowing 1900 bucks a month on an apartment that I rent. So, and to get into that, I need about, probably about $7,000 worth of furnishings and stuff like that. There's ways to make it cheaper. I could go into GG, value Village, all that stuff. So, meanwhile, the big house that I was talking about is going to cost me probably $25,000 to furnish. Hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, um, that's, thank you for breaking down an additional deal because, yeah, that does um just provide people with a, uh, a lot of insight as well. Um, but with regards to your AFS deal, how did you find this one? Word of mouth. I personally don't... I'm in a situation where deals just come to me. Yeah. Um, most of them are crap, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> um, I don't do any marketing of my own. I don't do any advertising. Um, I don't, I'm not in the position... I have more deals right now than I have money to deal with. The deals. So I'm not in a position right now where I'm like screaming for deals and stuff like that. At the same time though, this is the best market to buy in right now. So I'm, I'm definitely like snapping up everything I can. Um, so that's a, that's word of mouth. I've developed a reputation in the local community over since I started off in 2016, uh, back in those days, Rain was kind of like in the bad boy box. Mogul was just starting out. Um, Tilt Property Group was the cool new kid on the block. So it was a different world. I got into that world and I developed a reputation there just as a typical real estate investor. Yeah. COVID hit and by that time I had shifted over into Airbnbs. Now I'm known as the Airbnb guy. And since people know that I can afford a little bit higher than most people can afford uh, because I have Airbnb income instead of long-term rental income, I get more people reaching out to me with deals where there's just a high ex monthly expenses, but they're willing to, you know, give up, like finance more of the deal. And that's nice. So that's where, I, that's how it is now. And I think that's a big thing that new investors don't realize is they need to develop a reputation. They need to find some way to stand out. Um, I just happened to stand out because I'm an Airbnb guy. But at the same time, I did think strategically to make myself stand out even back in the old days. One thing I do is I have a, a fancy tie knot. I, I always wear, have yeah. this little knot. And it's just enough so people recognize me and stuff like that. I naturally have a very bubbly personality. I made business cards that look like Monopoly cards. So I don't think I've ever showed you. But yeah, no. my business cards, when I actually used to hand them out, I copied the Monopoly property deed cards. And yeah. I just made them look like that. 
And so I do little things like that to be noticed and stand out and then work on that developing reputation of, you know, doing at the time burrs. So people would come to me every so often with a burr strategy and stuff like that. Um, so for people who are just starting out, find a niche that you can own in and then do things to advertise yourself. You don't have to go crazy. Starting a podcast, for example, is a fantastic way to do it. I don't recommend to somebody who hasn't bought in a deal yet, but you yeah. can record your first deal make videos about your first property analysis, make videos about your flips that you're doing all the stages of the way. I mean, it's like TikTok's all the rage. I hate TikTok, but it's all the rage right now. Yeah. Go and do that. And you'll be known as the guy who did the TikTok thing or did the flip in this place. And that's how you can start to develop a reputation really quickly without having to do a ton. Wear a bow tie. I always recommend to people, wear a bow tie. Everyone wears ties yeah. at all yeah. these meetings. Like nobody wears a bow tie. And unless you're, I mean, like, it fits if you're, like, an old man in his 40s. But if you're a regular dude and you wear a bow tie, you'll stand out. And it'll be a great way to get conversation going and stuff like that. Especially if you wear one with, like, cats or, <laughs> like, funny polka dots. Yeah. All you're doing is you're making it so you can be better approached. Yeah, no, for <laughs> sure. Just a side note, though, Carlos, I don't think you can uh, blend in even if you tried. Like, you know, there's Where's Waldo. It's like, there's Carlos, you know, even if you wore exactly the same thing. <laughs> but that, right. that is a great tip, though. Like, standing out, um, being known for, for something is 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 uh, a great tip. I don't know if you know Alex Hormozzi. Um, But, yeah, one of these things that he did was... Uh, the handlebar moustache, you know, because a lot of people weren't doing that and uh, he really stood out. He doesn't have it anymore, but absolutely, if you could find a way to stand out, I think that's that's great advice. Yeah. One of my friends, Jeremy, we jokingly call him the coffee guy because he'll literally sit down and have coffee with anybody. Oh, yeah. He's a fantastic center of influence. So if you have a chance, go find Jeremy and sit down and have coffee with him and he'll yeah. connect you with whoever you need. Yeah. Fantastic guy. There's tons of great people. Well, like, it's it's an amazing easy world to to branch into because real estate investors on a whole are great people they're awesome there's a couple of sharks kicking around and ask around and you'll eventually know who they are but overall people are awesome and they're super open and willing to help you out yeah yeah exactly if anyone listening uh wants to know where they could find jeremy like my first podcast was with jeremy so um I'm sure you can find it on my channel. I have his contact. I have his contact info in the description there. He has a podcast himself. Yeah, reach out to Jeremy. He is the networking guy. He's uh, always networking, always beating up for coffee. Um, but Carlos, I want to know about you. Like, what when you're not investing, how else are you spending your time? That's a good question. How am I spending my time these days? <laughs> well, of course, I'm a dad. I'm. I, as soon as I say I'm a dad, everyone knows the majority of my time is spent with my kids. Um, that being said, I don't really have, I, I'm lucky in like with all the furniture that I make and stuff like that. That's a big part of what I'm passionate about. I love making things. I love building things. So it's really nice for me to have my business also be a lot of my passions. So majority of the stuff I do in that regards falls into that, that kind of like box, that category. Tell me, where can listeners find out more about you? If people want to just follow along your journey, if people want to reach out to you. I don't know if you're really doing um, joint ventures or if all your properties are essentially under your own umbrella. But um, I'm at the point where you got to do joint ventures. Yeah. You can't do everything by myself. So I've got a few joint venture partners. Teamwork makes the dream work. So yeah, if people are looking 
looking to get to know Carlos a little better, where where can they find you? I'll list all your contact info in the description as well. The best place to find me is on Facebook. Just Facebook. shoot me a, a DM or Instagram. I'm not really active on my Instagram, but you can still shoot me a DM. I'll try to respond as fast as I can. Um, I moved away from, I've I moved to having um, coaching calls. So if people really want to talk to me, pick my brain, um, just simply shoot me uh, a message and we'll arrange a coaching call. It'll just be an alley cart by the, by the hour kind of thing. So that's what I'm doing nowadays for people who really want to have that. I just don't have time to really answer people. And I get like probably four or five messages a week from people asking me just questions. Um, a better place to, if you have an Airbnb already and you're looking for advice, go into your Airbnb host club. If you're in Edmonton, I'm there. If you're in Calgary and Rockies, those three ones, I'm actually in the host club there. It's an Airbnb's official host club. I'm actually the community leader for Edmonton's Airbnb community group. So any questions you post there, I'll do my best to answer because I'm a community leader there. So that would be the other place that you could probably catch me and stuff like that. Perfect. Well, after hearing that, I feel honored that you responded to my DM. <laughs> and I was like, hey, do you want to be on the show? Like, I mean, some people approach me to be on the show and then sometimes I'm approaching people. But I was like, hey, let's send Carlos a DM. I think he would he would have a lot to bring to the show. So I feel honored that you responded to mine, given the, the volume of DMs you get. <laughs> I get around to it eventually. So I, so. <laughs> no, I try to respond to absolutely every single DM I get. Unless they're crazy people, then I just don't. But I get that. I get that. Yeah. And and you prefer people DMing you as opposed to like sending you an email or anything like that, hey? Yeah, do not send me an email. It will literally get lost and I will never answer it. I will <laughs> pretend to answer it in my head or I'll write the draft and then never send it because I get distracted. Yeah. DMs, please. Don't, don't email me. Don't call me either because I will probably not answer the phone and it'll be a game of tag. Or I'll assume you're an Airbnb guest. So... <laughs> well carlos thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to bring us all this value this was an awesome episode and uh as always i love chatting to you you like i say you 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 just don't blend in you stand out you uh have a really unique personality it's uh yeah it's always a pleasure speaking with you awesome dude it was great to be on this podcast i love you man you're always super fun to talk to and you got, you're one of the most happiest guys i know so it's always been great. Every time we talk, I'm like, oh, this is just going to be a great experience when I see you walking up the chat. So it's, it's awesome to be able to actually have some time for you and I to sit down and get to know each other even better. A few minutes later. So I have this carport in the back. It's a huge, like 40 foot long carport. And I got it for 400 bucks from Home Depot. Regular price is like 3000 And the reason why I got it for so cheap was because I just had a relationship with everybody at Home Depot. I make a, I've been going to the same Home Depot probably for like four years now, sometimes like multiple days, like almost every day of a week when I'm doing big renovations and stuff like that. But I would go in, I'd say hi. I got to know the ProDesk people, by the way. ProDesk is where you want to make your initial relationships. Cashiers can't do nothing. ProDesk can do like everything. And then I get to know them, laugh with them, and then I would end, I, I'd start meeting the managers, getting to know the managers, and becoming friends with the managers enough. So over time, I, I'm the Home Depot that I go to all the time. I literally know everyone in that store by name. They all know me. They know my kids. They know everything. And then I have a reputation of being like, hey, I notice you have a bunch of these um, on clearance items. Like, what's the last thing I bought? Um, oh, yeah, like a bunch of um, 
uh, screwdrivers, like the multi-bit screwdrivers. Yeah. And I was like, perfect. I can have one of these and put one in every single one of my suites in the storage room. So that way my cleaners can make repairs easy. So there was like, there was like 12 of them left. And I said, it, it was showing regular place, $20 on clearance, $8. And it had been on clearance for like a month. I went up to the, the manager and I was just like, Hey, I will buy all of these for $3 each. And he looked at me, him, and he nodded. He's like, well, can you do $4 each? I'm like, ah, I can do $4 each, but I also want that box of extension, like eight extension cords. Uh, can I get those for like two bucks each? And he gave them to me. What? I literally got, and those extension cords were regular price 20 bucks. And that's the thing, because in this case, I am doing him a favor because the store that I go to is a smaller size store. So for them, space is at a premium. He doesn't want to cut a deal with one item or two items. He, if I could take the full inventory, he loves me. So, like, I remember I went to one other store that also had the same extension cord on sale, and they had 100 And I said, I will buy all of these extension cords for 2 bucks each. And then they made me pay 3 bucks each, and I bought, like, essentially, like, I think it was, like, 75 15-foot-long extension cords for 3 bucks a pop. I, and, I, and I use them. I, I don't buy things that I won't use. I buy things Absolutely. that I know I won't use. Yeah. yeah. So, in extension cords, I go through them like nuts. But, um... By developing that relationship over the years, eventually it comes to a point when there's a one-off item like that carport, and he had reduced the price down to a thousand. It was not moving. It was an online return. He hated it because it was ugly and it was taking up the middle of his aisle. I, I waited until it didn't sell. You want like if it's something you really really need, you, you can go and you could probably do a little bit of a discount. But I wanted to get this for really cheap, so I waited till it had been sitting there for about three weeks. And then I said to him, hey, if you want me to take this off your hands, I will literally take it off your hands. And I'm like, can you, can you cut me a deal? Can you do like 400 And he looked at me and he's like, Carlos, honestly, I hate this thing so much. I shouldn't do it for 400 but we love you. So we'll give it to you for 400 wow. And so I got this giant carport and it's the size of probably like two, like two storage units. And so I'm able to stuff all my excess furniture in there. And that comes from developing a relationship with your distributors. Windsor Plywood, for example, that's where I get all my epoxy from. I know all the Windsor Plywood people by name. I walk in there and I laugh with them. I joke with them. I've been coming there for years. I'm known as the epoxy guy. I show them pictures of what I do with epoxy. I do all this socialization. They love it. They love being treated like people. And I'm asking their opinion on stuff like that. And so I get like pretty decent discounts on epoxy. It's not like you know 70% off it's like 10 to 15% off but it's a huge deal when it comes to things like epoxy where the markup isn't that big yeah and then likewise as well when i went there there was a slab of wood i'm making this giant river table the slab is actually in the shape of the province of alberta so it's going to be absolutely perfect to do yeah but i i told them i'm like hey um i'm not sure if i'm going to buy this i I need to talk with my JV partner because it's a big expense. It was going to be like 1200 bucks. Um, so I'm like, I'm going to talk to my JV partner and come back. And they're like, okay. Literally right after I left, another guy walked in and said, Hey, I've been waiting for three years to save up. I'd like to buy that slab because the slab had been there for years. He's like, I'd like to buy that slab. And the guy, because of my relationship with them said, sorry, man, it's sold. And the guy's like, what? And he's like, yeah, it's sold. I'm sorry. Um, the guy, if if he doesn't buy it, I'll let you know. Um, but he's coming back Monday. So lo and behold, I come back Monday and I'm like, "Yep, yeah, I'm good to sell or good to buy it." And he's like, "Perfect." He's like, "I." The other guy came in. I told him it sold the day before, and he was willing to hold it for me 
in the event that I wanted to buy it because of the relationship I had with him. Meanwhile, the other guy, you know, he just told him, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, you might have come in here and looked at it for like three years, but I don't really know you. I don't know who you are. Yeah. And uh, I don't, I, I prefer to sell it to this guy. So that's the relationship you develop with these people, like at different stores. Um, and then like it was, well, like you can get, and I think, I think the best example would be, um, and, and like, even if people seem like jerks, there's ways to get into people's hearts. My, my mom used to have this relationship with the Home Depot. Um, she got in a yelling match with the manager, one of the managers there. She wanted 18 months interest free. The previous manager had always given it to her when she spent more than $2,000. He made a special, um, uh, exception. So she get 18 months interest free. This new manager was very much by the book and she was yelling, saying no. They got into a literal yelling match and eventually she gave it to her. But at that point in time, my mom was like, I'm done. I'm not coming here ever again. I'm so sick of this place. Carlos, you can do all the purchases. Well, now I'm walking to the store. This lady already pre-hates me because I was there the whole time. So I'm like, well, how am I going to get into this like, lady's heart and make her not, not hate me? Yeah. How can I make her day better? So then my strategy was I'd walk up to her like after the first couple of times where I said hi, I'd walk up to her with like, like a, like a hammer, like a cheap $5 hammer and be like, <clears throat> ma'am, I don't want to say her name, but ma'am, can I get this with 18 months interest free? And the first couple of times she's like, what? She's like, no, you can't. And she, she would give me the textbook answer. I'm like, ah, okay, fine. And I come to her every single time I saw her with something ridiculous. I'm like, I come up to her with a bolt and be like, I need 18 months interest free on this bolt, and I'm gonna be so mad if you don't give it to me. And like after like two months of doing this, I finally broke her one day. She's like, fine. She's like, I'll give you 18 months, but you need to buy all the bolts, all of the bolts in the store. And she just threw something ridiculous back. I'm like, you'll give me 18 months, eh? And that means I have a year to return it. So why don't I buy it and then I can return it? next year and she looked at me and so like just a little game like that and so finally i broke her and then she she had a reputation for being really nasty to everybody and her and i laugh all the time and then she would give me the big discounts and stuff i never actually wanted 18 months from her because i knew that would be a line yeah but it was just a great way to to connect with people to make fun of you know you got people you tease people who honestly like one lady, she just always, when I go in there, I give her an update on my mom because she was actually really friendly with my mom. I said, yay, my mom's doing good, blah, blah, blah. This is what she's up to. She'd be like, oh, that's so good. I'm so glad to hear about that. And and you develop those relationships. And that's just with a store. And it's the same thing with any like area in real estate. You develop relationships with your realtors. Some people say, you know, you can just use realtors. Like you just go, you look at 100 houses, even though you have no intention of buying one, and you just eventually they burn up and you just move on to the next one. Well, you'll get a reputation. What if that realtor goes and becomes a really big realtor in the real estate communities? You're going to have a reputation of being the crappy guy who just kicks tires all day and doesn't do anything. Yeah. And then when you finally do go buy something with a different realtor, he's going to be like, what the heck? I did all the work and you didn't buy anything from me. So I always like, I always tell people to like, you know, go in there with a serious reputation, be transparent. Like if you go to Calvin, because Calvin's a guy we use and you, you tell him that you're just starting out, he'll respect it. He probably won't be the one to come to all your appointments. He'll probably come to a couple, but most of them he'll give to some newer guy who's a little bit more in training, who's starting out, so that way he can get the experience while at the same time you can also go look at the properties. Go and be honest with them. And then you'll develop a relationship with that under underling, underling with that newer uh, realtor, so that way when the time comes and that guy gets a good deal and you've, you know, at this point in time you've bought a property or two, he'll give it to you. 
So develop those relationships, develop those connections, be honest and direct with people, and you'll get great you'll get great service. Another thing as well is like I have a mortgage broker. She is the best in Alberta. I'm like not gonna lie, word of lie. She's the best mortgage broker in all of Alberta. I whenever I recommend people to her, because I haven't used her in a while because I haven't gotten a mortgage in forever, I've just been doing agreement for sales. I tell them, say, hey, tell her my name and then she'll treat you, she'll treat you good. And at the end of the day, like she'll probably treat her as amazing as she treats everyone else. But I tell them to go drop my name so that way she can keep remembering me. But also, if they have a bad experience, they know they can come to me and I will go talk to her. So it creates both a way for me to both help the broker because I'm giving her business and letting her know like, hey, like I, I kind of vetted this person a little bit. And then she also remembers me and then she's also gives me great service when I do call and say, hey, I need a mortgage tomorrow. So it, that's a great way to develop those relationships and develop those connections. Um, when you have like a property inspector come by, like get to know your property inspector. They'll either A, be a really detail-oriented person who just wants to come in and do his job perfectly, or B, he'll be a chatterbox who's just doing like you know an okay job, but he's going to tell you everything about everything. So when you go in there, you can get to know your property inspector. You can also learn a ton of things from them, and then you can... Uh, also figure out what kind of property inspector they are as they're inspecting your property. I know one guy, I used him. He literally took longer than any property inspector ever. He took four hours to do an inspection, which most inspectors would do right now. But he nailed every single item. He went and looked and checked every single item. And then he spent time actually telling me about every single item while he was doing that inspection. I'm going to use that guy forever. And likewise, that's the same with contractors. Like, um, with my, there, there, there's two kinds of contractors. There's contractors and trades that are technical. So that would be like electricians and plumbers and HVAC. It's a very technical trade. Um, when you find a good one of those, keep them forever. Love them. Do whatever you can when you find a good one. It's hard to find a good technical um, guy. So my plumbers, for example, on-demand plumbing is the best plumbers in all of Edmonton. I love them. I've used them nothing but for them for the last five years. They'll give me same-day service in an emergency. I can call them up and they'll do that. But that's also because I, I give them all the referrals and stuff like that. The other kind of ta um, tradesmen is trades which are arts. Drywall is not technical. Drywall is an art. To do drywall well, you need to have, figure out the art behind it. Yeah. Um, painting is an art, obviously. So although people think painting is easy and anyone can do it, the reality is to do painting really, really well. Yeah. There's a, there's definitely and okay, do it really, really, really well and do it really, really quickly. There's definitely an art to it. Um, with art-based trades, it's a little bit different because as they get better and better, their prices go up really quickly. Plumbers. A crappy plumber and a good plumber, they'll be about comparable because it's a technical trade. Anybody can really do it. But when it comes to art-based trades, there's that gap between a really fantastic drywaller will charge a premium. A really crappy drywaller is pretty much just a handyman. He'll just charge the bare minimum. So you got to be really, you got to find the guy. You got to give him his, like, give him as much business as you can. Enjoy him as much as you can. Realize there's going to come a day where he's just going to be too expensive. So if you have a great relationship, he'll probably keep the rate for you low forever. If you have a really crappy relationship, he's going to be jacking his price up really quickly. So you want to love that guy. Understand that unless your relationship is amazing, you'll probably eventually have to move past it. I love that. That just shows you the importance of relationships and how it affects 
every like every aspect of your I mean of everything but of your real estate business in particular um you just you've just given so many examples on how your relationship was key to um to it also I love that I love that and I'm shocked that you got away with that much of a discount I feel like wow I didn't even know that was possible to be honest um I guess that just shows you how how valuable your relationship is is to them. So I think uh, if there's one thing that people can take away from this, besides all the the technical stuff around Airbnb, is work on those relationships. Um, because this is a long it's a long term real estate investing in general is a long term business. So um, if you can build those relationships and keep those quality relationships with those around you, it's it's going to serve you tenfold in the long run. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. At the end of the day, real estate is just a relationship game. Yeah. Some relationships are really quick, like between a buyer and a seller. Some of them, if you have a property manager, your relationships can be for years. So get really good at developing good relationships. And you don't have to be as charismatic as Mr. As yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to be super charismatic. Honestly, like the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Great book. If you can understand the principles in there, you don't have to even be perfect at executing them for you to be able to be somebody that people actually care about. At the end of the day, I have, I'm blessed with a natural talent to be a chatterbox and to connect with people. Um, not everyone's like that. But that being said, I know some guys in the real estate community who have the social skills of a rock, like a literal stone. But they're huge networks they know a ton of people they know everybody and they're very much just business to the point and everyone knows them as like the guy who will get the job done he'll get the business done to the point and he also lacks that (laughs) they some of them actually lack that um hurt feelings filter where they're worried about hurting other people's feelings they're great realtors because they're willing to be sharks you just don't want to be on the other side of the table so there's there's definitely like everyone everyone's able to be really good at relationships if you just put in the time Absolutely. And that's a great book, by the way. I have the actual book. I've had it for ages. It's it's even like warped. And I have the audio book. Um, great book. If, if people out there haven't uh, listened to it, definitely recommend it. Yeah. I remember somebody telling me that there's um, seven books that kind of form the basis of everything in self-help in the personal development industry and how to win friends and influence people is one of them. Everything else essentially just can be summed up into that book. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to Building Wealth Through Real Estate. If you're interested in learning how you can go about raising capital to invest in real estate, then check out the episode where I interview Adrian Nedelec. This is your host, Alre Noble, signing off.